0: Father, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, because you are our shepherd. You are the one in whom we have no want and we have no fear. Lord, thank you for the hope as we follow you that we will dwell in your house forever. Lord, thank you and praise you that this is all possible because you sent us your son. We worship you and we give you thanks and praise. And it is with eagerness that we come before your word to be fed on your word, to receive that which, is, which life needs more than just food and bread, the food and the words that come from your very mouth. Feed your people this morning, we pray. Strengthen your people. Give us instructions that we might run this race in faithfulness, as you are faithful to us, Lord, we praise you and thank you uh, for this time now, and ask that you be glorified. And your Spirit teach us from your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to the Book of Numbers. Numbers, uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter ten, verses eleven through thirty-six. Numbers ten, eleven through thirty-six. And um, I hope you've been enjoying the series in Numbers. So we've been working through it um, for now about it's uh, well, almost a good part of the year. Uh, this will be the last uh, sermon in Numbers for about two months. Next in December, beginning of, in December, we will take a brief uh, series through the life of, through Christ. We're going to talk about uh, Christ uh, in well Christmas time. And then in January, we, as we do every year, we do a quick series through uh, the church, through our mission, vision, values. And we'll kind of just cover your uh, appropriate subjects regarding the church. And then probably end of January, February, we're going to pick up again in uh, numbers. So, but this is a very fitting because this passage is a transition. It's sort of like the, the end of one section and the, the launching of a new one. And that's what we're going to find here as the sons of Israel, finally, after all these 10 chapters of, of pr- training, preparing, and uh, getting ready to go out, they finally begin their march towards the promised land. That's what we're going to find here. They, they start, they start this, uh, this journey that God is going to lead them in. Now, uh, let me start off with a, just kind of a, a thought, a silly illustration, sort of, at least kind of, I feel a little silly talking about it, but because it's so temporal, but anyways, it's, uh, it makes a point. As some of you may know, I've been—I uh, have been a uh, fan of Seattle sports teams for most of my life, having been raised, grown, born and raised in Seattle. And uh, if you, you know, it may be true for your teams, but definitely for Seattle fans, uh, following Seattle sports is a, is really a lesson in humility. Okay, uh, you know, it's just—it uh, really is. Uh, it, you know, it's—you know, once in a while, we, you know, we might win something, but most times we. Uh, we start off really well, and then there's disappointment, and uh, and the, the Fox Seattle sports teams is often a lesson that great starts don't always lead to um, to great finishes, okay, and uh, I know you guys, are, I want to mention things that you probably don't even remember, because there's Seattle stuff, but just bear with me, okay, uh, there, was the, uh, there was the 1994 Supersonics, yeah, what, what's that, you're wondering, well, those you know, NBA fans know that there once once upon a time was a basketball team in Seattle, uh, it's now in Oklahoma City. But anyways, we won't uh, talk about that a bit. Um, but 94 Super Science was a great team. It was led by the glove, Gary Payton, and the rain man, Sean Kemp. And, and the, it was a wonderful team. It was, uh, uh, and it was a great, was an exciting team to watch. And they, were the number, they became the number one seed in the Western Conference. And so uh, we expected them to uh, probably to make it the NBA Finals. And, uh, but uh, they were in the first playoff series. They were up two games to nothing. Uh, and, a, and a best of five, uh, they had even won those two games by double digits, and so all they had to do was win one more game out of the rainy three games, uh, three possible games, and then would cl- move on to the next, next uh, round. But as uh, many Seattle fans know, uh, and still uh, mourn to this, uh, not really, we don't mourn anymore, but three games later, it was the first time in NBA history that a number eight seed defeated a number one seed in the NBA playoffs, and that was a, uh, so that's part of our Seattle history. Um, Perhaps some of you know of the 2001 Mariners, 2001 Mariners, oh no, okay, anyways, uh, (laughs) just bear with me, Uh, that was the year that the Mariners signed the greatest Japanese ball player in in all history, uh, Ichiro Suzuki, they signed him out of Japan, he came and played for Seattle and he led the Seattle Mariners to a record record tying 160 game win season most in all of MLB history in a 162-game series. It was 116 games. It was, it was 14 games more than even the second-closest team. That was the Oakland A's at that time. Uh, of course, uh, we were expecting World Series, and uh, the sad news is they lost in the ALCS uh, to the, the Yankees. Uh, uh, only, and then, of course, there's a more painful one, but it has to do with the Seahawks, but I can't talk about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, all this kind of silliness is, is simply saying that um, God, you know, there. Are, while great starts are great, they're 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 good. Uh, great starts don't always guarantee great finishes. Okay, um, great starts sure make it easier. As many of you guys, as you you know, all you uh, Giants fans would know, you have many reasons to rejoice. And 49 er fan, great starts do make do are, are very important for great finishes. They help in great finishes, but they don't always guarantee it. Um. But even more importantly, to even have a great finish, to even have a good finish, to even ever finish, you must start. You must run the race. You must play the game. If you never play, you never start, you'll never finish. And you'll never finish great. you never finish well unless you start. And today's passage is a passage about starting off. And it's a passage that encourages you and me, hopefully all of us will remember how we have started off on this. As in the Christian life, we call it, it's described in many ways. It's described as a race. It's described as a journey. We're all sojourners here in this world. Where we're all heading to a place, a promised rest, a promised land. Uh, and there's many other kind of figures. It's uh, as a, as a fight that we're fighting and, uh, and games that, and that we're hoping to win. But and when we remember, uh, we, we, as we look at this passage of how Israel started, it will encourage us as we run this race, as we're running this race towards uh, the the end, the the finish line. And hopefully, it will encourage us on this journey that uh, God will that God will um, that God will encourage you to not grow weary, not lose heart, because it is a long race, it's a long journey, and there are many times, many places where uh, we're we're going to be tempted to fall away, and that's. Uh, uh, whatever situation you may be facing now remember this this record of this passage was written for future generations it was really primarily for the second generation that would follow Israel but it's really written for all future generations to encourage the new generation to start off well as well and to remain faithful throughout their journeys on this Thanksgiving weekend, all of us have many things to give thanks for. We're, uh, most of all, I hope, we're all, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're thankful for our, our salvation, right? Our salvation in Jesus Christ, who died in place of us. And in light of that, he gives us all spiritual blessings. We're adopted as sons and daughters. Uh, we, he has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And he gives us the hope, the hope of one day bringing, being t- together with him for all eternity to dwell in his house forever. Um, and this was how we all, we all began this way when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. May this morning's passage reminds us of how we began our journey and with humble faith and commitment to follow him and that that will encourage us to continue to do so. For an outline today, we're going to look at uh, three characteristics of the people of God as they started out toward the promised land. These three characteristics were true of them. It should be true of every future successive generation of the people of God and it should be true of our generation and it is true of our generation today all right so let's look at then at this passage as the Israel the sons of Israel set out and find out what we can teach us about starting off about what and starting off well starting off well first of all the first characteristic of the people of God is that they are a people that are believing the Lord a people believing in the Lord or trusting in the Lord these Israelites had received instructions from the Lord uh, throughout their, their journey, their, their journey so far, especially at, uh, there at the base of Mount Sinai. And they believed in God's wisdom. They trusted God's word. They believed in his power. And so they followed his commands. They observed his commands. We've been seeing that all throughout Numbers. How many times have we seen the phrase? And they, they did according to his commands. They did according to what he commanded through Moses. And it's a repetition that reminds us that it just really is, continues to uh, be manifest even here. Verse 11 and 12 provide for us what's called an overview, an overview. It's a two verses that sort of summarize the whole journey of the Israelites as they're heading towards the promised land. From here they're going to, uh, from here to the, the next major place that they're going to travel to. Let's look at verse 11 and 12 in Numbers chapter 10. Now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. It had been, as we look at this, we see that the date is very singular. It's the second year. It's the second month on the 20th day. So nearly over a year has passed since Israel had been delivered out of, a, out of Egyptian uh, s- slavery and uh, had l- they celebrated the Passover. I'll put up a little chart here. It kind of just highlight major events throughout their, uh, the, time be- the time from when they left Egypt till their departure from Sinai up here. But, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of for you to take a look. Sorry for the small ones. Just take a picture of it. The majority of the time, of course, they had, they had left uh, Egypt. They spent at the base of Mount Sinai, in the wilderness of Sinai. And they, they got there on the third month, 14th day, and according to Exodus 19. And there they basically received instruction from the Lord. Moses went to Mount Sinai. He received instructions, he received the law, received instructions particularly about building this particular building called the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, if you remember that. Uh, this tent of meeting was then eventually completed, according to Exodus 40, on the second year of the first month, the first day. So basically uh, one year uh, later, they built the tabernacle. It was completed. Um, <clears throat> then after that, they, uh, they began to observe the Passover they were instructed by God to observe the Passover a second time we, on the first month, of the 14th day, they observed it a second time but there was some who said, hey, wh- wh- what if we can't, what if we're, um, what if, uh, we're unclean, we're on a journey, etc. and so God gave them an opportunity to, uh, to observe it a second time on the 14th day of the second month and we see that but in between there, on the on the very beginning of that second month, God then gave them instructions to number the Israelites, and we study this in Numbers one to four, right? We told, told them how to number the soldiers, number the warriors, number the uh, number, number the Levites, the worship leaders, basically of Israel, the priests, and so uh, to number them all. And also along with that numbering was instructions how they were to camp, and how are they to, how are they how they were to march as well. Because God was setting forth together, basically, an army of Israelites. Then, so, the last thing that we find taking place here is six days after the the second observance of uh, the second Passover. We see on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, they leave Mount Sinai. They, we, we had just saw earlier in chapter 10, verse 1 to 10, about uh, how uh, whenever the cloud would lift up, that's when they would go. And whenever the cloud would come back, uh, would st- uh, rest, that's when they knew they had to stay. They would always follow the cloud, the cloud being a manifestation of the Lord. And that is what they did. Here we see in verse 1 that the, on that day, the cloud was lifted over from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and it basically moved forward. And it was an indication that the Lord was commanding them. It was, a, it was God's, we looked at last week, that it was whenever the cloud moved, it was the command of the Lord to set out. And when the cloud moved stopped, it was the command of the Lord for them to camp. They were following God's instruction. That's what they did. They set out, uh, as this cloud moved out, they set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Notice the word plural. The plural word "journeys" indicates that they would make several kind of journeys, little steps along the way. Uh, will in, fact, in fact, before they even get to Paran, uh, there's going to be three other stops along the way, in which we'll read about or study in uh, Numbers 11 and 12. Now, narrative. The narrative tells us in verse two that the one, uh, eventually the cloud is going to rest on uh, in the. Is going to settle down in the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Paran. I'll throw up a map here again. It's a small map. I uh, apologize. Oops! I ran it really fast. There it goes. Uh, this is the Sinai Peninsula of, of its modern-day Egypt. Uh, there, in the south part, is the wilderness of Sinai. There's Mount Sinai, is believed to be there, and then you'll kind of see a little north and east, really no, almost directly north, but north a little eastward is something called Paran. Paran is this kind of this large region. Uh, it's a wilderness area and where uh, where most significantly, where they're going to arrive at, but most significantly in this event in the Paran is this place called Kadesh Barnea. It's a little, uh, kind of a very little tip there. At Kadesh Barnea would be uh, the most significant uh, kind of next moment in the history of, of Israel's marching because at Kadesh Barnea is where they will stop, Kadesh Barnea is where they're going to send out spies. Canesh Barnea is where the spies come back. They're going to give a good report, a bad report. And Israel has to decide, are we going to believe the good report or are we going to believe the bad report? Are we going to trust God or are we going to not trust God to enter the promised land? And, of course, you know, the first generation chooses to believe the bad report, chooses to not trust in God. And they then spend 40 more years wandering in the wilderness. But that becomes a, uh, it will become a significant, it's the next, next stage. But before we can, we'll get there eventually, uh, that's in Numbers 13. Uh, but the key here is that uh, whenever, when the cloud lifted and and led them ahead, the Israelites followed, and we see uh, their the, uh, their the following reflected in their obedience, their obedience, and that we see this all kind of basically reflected in verses thirteen to twenty-eight, the bulk of this passage. But uh, I'll kind of won't, well, we'll spend a little time here. In verse 13, 28, we read this. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And... Uh... It was the first time setting out for the Israelites, this first generation. So it's a very exciting time. You ever kind of leave on a journey, especially if you're like, uh, think of like cruise ships. You know, when you're leaving on a cruise ship, it's very, as soon as it launches, it's a very exciting time. Everybody's out there on the deck waving and all stuff. You know, So it's a very tremendous time. But here, this is, this is the first time they're setting out on their journeys. It's been a whole year since they've been camped here in the wilderness of Sinai. And, and, but as they set out, they did it according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. They followed God's commands. They, were very fit. they wanted to make sure they marched and, and set out exactly as the Lord had commanded them. And so we, we see that happening in 14 through 28. The standard of the camp, and we see this marching order. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to the army, set out first. With Nashon, the son of Aminadab, over its army. And Nathaniel the son of Zuar, even the, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar. And Eliab, the son of Helon over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben, according to their army, set out with Elizer, the son of Shadir, over its army, and Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai, over the tribal army of the sons of Simeon. And Eliasath, the son of Dul, was over the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out, with Elishamah, the son of Amihud, over its army, and Gamaliel, the son of Pendazar over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and Abidan the son of Gideonai, over the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps, set out, with Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, over its army, and Pegiel, the son of Akron, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and Ahirah the son of Enan over the tribal army, the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. And so we see this, this there's a this very specific order in which all the Israelites marched out as they, they followed God's instruction, God's leaning. And, you know, it wasn't, this is not just uh, their own invention, but this, if you recall, this is exactly the order in which God had instructed the Israelites in, back in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 2. The major difference here is that what was stated more generally in Numbers 2 is, more, is elaborated in a little greater detail here, particularly with regards to the, to the, uh, the, the objects related to the tabernacle. Uh, we'll, we'll see that the, there's actually a dividing of the tabernacle so that the different elements of the tabernacle are not just... Traditionally, we think of them as the center, and we, we'll still see that, but there are other elements that kind of go... Uh, two other elements that will go in a, a different places in the army, and that they all have a particular purpose. We see that uh, in this description, as they, as they followed the Lord, they followed God's command. First, according to God's command, the tribal armies led by Judah go out. So Judah's tribe leads two other tribes, and they go out. Then we notice the first kind of uh, unique thing or new thing is that the Gershonites and the Merarites; those were the descendants of Levi, right? They were tasked with basically carrying the different elements of, of the of the. Uh, tabernacle. They were particularly to carry the, the curtains, the hangings, uh, the framework, the poles, the posts, and the, you know, whatnot. So basically the frame uh, and, the, and the coverings of the tabernacle, they were to carry it. And so here they are kind of a little apart from uh, the, tab, the holy objects later on, but these go second in this procession. Third then was the armies led by Reuben and his uh, other two armies. And then in the middle of the march, we see that the Kohathites, the, the remaining uh, sons of Levi who come along, and they're carrying the holy objects. They're carrying the things that, are, that make the tabernacle really way, it's significant. That This is the altar of incense. This is the, um, the, the lampstand. This is the table of showbread. This is the, the bronze layer. This is the bronze altar. And these are all going alongside. And all the different instruments which used to, to serve those things and prepare those things, they all go in, in this middle By, and so we see now a little bit of the wisdom, actually the scripture tells us, the wisdom of sending the, uh, the other two uh, Levite uh, families ahead first with the, the, the coverings and the uh, framework so that they can get there first. When, they, when the Lord told them to stop, they can set up the outward tent and then these holy objects will come in and they'll, they'll be placed right in the middle Fifth, then, was the armies led by Ephraim, and then taking up the rear guard was the armies led by Dan. And this was the order, and it was not just a random order, but it was all according to the command of the Lord. In obedience to God's command, they set out, they followed the cloud. In obedience to God's command, they marched in the order which the Lord had instructed in Numbers chapters 1 to 4. They simply, as the song goes, trusted in the Lord and obeyed. They trusted and obeyed. God had given them instructions. They didn't say, well, you know, I don't. let me think about that if that's a good idea. You know, they didn't think about it. They didn't second guess God. God had given them instructions. That was how they had to march. And so they said, let's follow these instructions. They, tr- they believed and trusted in God to follow his instructions. They didn't just choose to go whenever, wherever they wished, whenever they wished, or however they wanted. They followed God's instructions. Uh, they were not like uh, some today who basically just say, you know, hey, I'm just going to, you know, just love, if, as long as you love the Lord, just go do whatever you want. You know, and then they just live in whatever life they want, and you know, and but you know, hey, you can't judge them because they're loving the Lord. But that's not really what the Scriptures teach, right? If you love the Lord, you will obey His commandments, right? You will obey My command. Jesus said that, but uh, John says it, wrote it, wrote about it too, in First John five three. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. See, the people of God, as they started off, they were people who. Believed in God. So God had received the instructions out of love for their God who had delivered them out of slavery. Brought them through the wilderness for this last year. Helped provide manna, provide quail, provide for all their needs. And brought them to this place. Gave them the law. Gave them instruction. And I totally even skipped it. But when the tabernacle was built, when when God's glory that was once on the mountain and once outside the, the in the temporary tent outside the camp was now in their midst. In the middle of them. And why, and, they, and, having, and with the establishment of the sacrifice of the offerings was an instructive lesson for the Israelites that God, they could dwell in the presence of God because a, a life had to be sacrificed, a life had to be paid so that they could live and dwell in the midst of holy God. Of course, that would predict foretell Jesus, but uh, we are not there yet. And so here are these, out of love for God, the people when, having received God's instructions, obeyed his command, exactly that which was uh, that which given. They were a people believing the Lord. If they didn't believe the Lord, they wouldn't follow the Lord. But they believed God's promise, as we're going to see uh, reflected in Moses a little bit later. They believed that God had promised them a promised land. They believed that God knows what is best. And even if they didn't understand, well, why this order? Why does, you know, why does Judah get to go first? Why not Reuben? Reuben's Reuben's oldest. Why not let the youngest go first? You know, why not let Dan go first? Why not let uh, some of the other uh, tribes go first? No, this is God's order. You trust. We know you might not understand why, but we're going to follow God this way. And uh, and and they do that. The people believe in the Lord. That's the first characteristic, and that's and that's that's how all of us begin the journey. Right? It's by believing in the Lord, by trusting. We hear His word. We hear the instruction. We hear the gospel. We hear the and we believe in it. And we obey the gospel. We put our trust in Jesus. That's how all of us begin this journey. And that's how every generation, uh, people who receive God's instruction, they become his people, they put their trust, and they follow and they believe in him. Anyways, uh, we move on. There's a second characteristic of the people of God as they set out, and that's a people blessed by the Lord. The people of God who are, uh, believe in the Lord are people that are blessed by the Lord. Verse 29 and 32 of chapter 10. Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father in law. We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us, inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you go with us, that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. This section is uh, just interesting here because we see Moses inviting someone to come along with them. That's kind of odd, you know, because we're thinking that hey, this is the camp of Israel, right? If everybody's here as an Israelite, aren't they expected to go along? But the reason that Moses invites this guy Hobab is because Hobab is not an Israelite. He's he's not one of the people of God. He's not a descendant of Jacob. He's a, a Midianite, as we're going to find. Midianites uh, uh, are basically are descendants of Abraham through one of, the, uh, one of his other wives. Uh, they would become the, the, the tribes of Midian. And so he's not in Israel, not a, a, a son of the, sons of the, one of the sons of promise of God. He's not one of the recipients of the law. He's not in that special chosen nation status. But here he is somehow dwelling within Israel. And Moses invites him to come along with them. Now, Hobab, we learn, uh, who is this Hobab? Hobab was the son of Ruel, uh, the Midianite. And according to Exodus 2.18, Ruel was another name for Moses' father-in-law, which we kind of know more commonly as Jethro, right? You guys know Jethro? Uh, Exodus 18 is a big chapter there. Uh, and we know how Jethro was, he came come and visited Moses while basically they were encamped before Mount Sinai. And, and he saw Moses basically judging the people. And it was like the massive amounts of people. And he says, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're being a fool. Why don't you choose some godly other men, come alongside leaders, and delegate to them the responsibility of ruling over the people? And if they have any big problems, then they can bring it up to you, but let them handle the day to day, the little problems. So learn to delegate. And there's a lessons about leadership delegation there from that story that we in, in Exodus 18. And Jethro has that, you know, is just shares that wisdom. And it's kind of, by the way, you should listen to your in-laws, huh? Uh, but no, uh, yeah, you should. Uh, because it's wisdom. So it's the older, you know, older father, mother, you know, they, they're just, they're just, when you get married, you get a second mom and dad, you know, and, they, and they're there for you to give you wisdom. And so he gives Moses wisdom. But at the very interesting thing about Jethro is that he doesn't stick around. At the end of chapter 18 of Exodus, it, we read this, that Jethro went his way into his own land. So he's, he's already gone. He's gone back to Midian. But for some reason, Hobab, the son of Jethro, was still at the camp of Israel this time. He didn't go with, he didn't go with Jethro. Why was he still here? Why is Hobab here? Anyways, he's, uh, he's still with him. So uh, there's, you know, there's something about the people of God that had drawn Hobab to them. Something about them, something that... Um, that was unique about the Israelites that drew. And, and we don't know exactly what it was, but there was something there that caused Hobab to want to stay with the people of God. And so as they're getting ready to march out, Moses, who sees Hobab, he's, he's like a, what we call a sojourner. He's basically stayed with the Israel. He's went with them. He's basically lived among them, followed their ways. And, uh, and Moses invites him say, hey, why don't you come along with us? Come along with us to, towards the promised land. Moses' invitation, though, even as he asks, and reflects his faith in the Lord. He, he reflects uh, just his convictions, his, his understandings, and God's promise towards Israel. And we see it in, it's a twofold kind of reflection of what God, he knows what God has promised. He introduces, says the Lord has promised to give us this land. He's promised to give a land to us. And he also says the Lord has promised good concerning, him. God's promise to do good to Israel. And so I want you to come with us so that we can do good for you. Just as the Lord had promised good concerning Israel, so Israel, through Moses here, promises to do good to Hobab, the Midianite. And if you think of these words, especially the quote there, I will give it to you, that that phrase there. These are all reminiscent of of the words that we've read before in Genesis. And that is the Abrahamic covenant. And Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. um, and, And it reads like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And so God told Abram to leave. And a part of his promise to Abram is that he would show him a land. He would give him a land. Now verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. The second part of the blessing is that he would make him a great people, a great nation, a mighty nation. At this time, Abram doesn't even have a son much less a mighty nation okay, or a family. He just has a wife, and they're, all, they're out there in years, 75, 80, 75 years old. Then he says, and I will bless you. That's the third promise that God makes in Abraham coming, the promise of a blessing. God will bless him. I will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this threefold blessing that God would bless Abraham's descendants is Abraham's seed so that they then would be a blessing to others. And this is the Abrahamic covenant. uh, And we see this reflected in Moses' reflection upon what God has promised to them. That God would keep all his promises. He had already promised them to make them into a mighty nation. Seventy individuals left uh, the land of Israel and went down into Egypt to be saved from the famine. They, they followed Joseph, remember that. That 70 people over 400 years became a nation of 2 million, 600,000 fighting men. So approximately with women and children, 2 million people came out of Egypt, a great nation, and they would become an even greater nation once they entered the Promised Land, especially at the height of, the, of, of David's rule. They, became, they would become great. But Moses has faith in this, and he, even more so here, what's profound is that he gets he gets it that God has promised to do good to them, and he gets it that when God does good to us, we need to do good to others. He, he gets it. He remembers that God blesses us not just so that we're, we're blessed, not so that we're good, but so that we can bless others, so that we can do good to others. That's, that's, the, that's the how God works. God, God blesses us so that all we may be a blessing. Of course, this promise in you all, the families of the earth, will be blessed. We know that uh, in the New Testament, Galatians 3, for instance, will reveal that this blessing is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right? It's the blessing of salvation, of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. This would go to extend to the families of the earth. That's you and me. But Moses, even now, in his invitation to Hobab, his brother-in-law, this Midianite, this person who really... You know, for all you know, intents and purposes, he should just, would probably have a very good reason to go back to his, to his homeland. But, but like Ruth and Naomi, seeing something good about the people of God, wanted to be a part of the people of God and wanted to be a part. And he, Hobab had already been staying with them for this past, and, that, and that's an indication. We're just reading in between the lines, but he could have gone back any time, but here he's still here. But at first he declines, right? So he's no, like, oh, he wants to go back to his home. I get that. You know, there, there have been times even, you know, there, and there are times where you want to just kind of go back to be with your home. You know, I've, when I was younger, when we were sitting out here, there are times we want to go back to Seattle and be close to our family, be with our family. But the longer we, we stay around with you guys, you're, this church, our family, there's a sense we, we, we love being around you. You're our family. And uh, that's, that's kind of what happens with Hobab. And so Moses invites him again. He says, no, oh, you know what? What God, uh, we need, he, he gives him a practical reason. He says, hey, we need your help. You know this wilderness. We need your help. You need your knowledge and skills. You can be a, you can be a scout for us, and you can help us in this. But then, most importantly, Moses reiterates the promise to Hobab. He says, Whatever the Lord God does good for us, whatever good he does, we're going to do for you. Now, when we get to this section, if you read this commentaries, oftentimes commentators will make note that this is a teaching about, a lesson about divine sovereignty and human responsibility that yes, the people of God are to follow the Lord, obey the Lord, and go to the promised land. But here, Moses' invitation for, to Hobab to come along and to assist them is an indication that you can use your wisdom, you can use skills, you can invite others to come alongside and give you counsel, guidance to accomplish the purposes of God. And, we, and, and certainly it's Ill, that is illustrated here and exemplified here, but, but I believe the big truth here is what is repeated, that which twice Moses offers to Hobab to do good, To him, as the Lord does good to Israel, he knows that God has blessed them. He's going to bless them with the land. God has blessed them already with deliverance out of Egypt. But God's going to keep is going to be faithful to do good to Israel. And he says, "You know, we want to do good to you, Hobab. We want you to come with us." Uh, It leaves. By the way, we actually don't find out if Hobab um, goes with them here. But uh, there's there's a passage I I lost. I forgot which it is now. I think it's Judges one eighteen. I don't have it written down, that, uh, uh, where we see actual reference to Hobab, the descendants of, uh, of, uh, of Hobab, and, and actually being with the Israelites at, uh, when they're conquering the land. So it does seem that like he does follow them uh, and takes up Moses' offer. But Moses here understands and lives out the principle that God blesses his people so that they may be a blessing to others. And as God's people today, We have been blessed. We're richly blessed in Jesus Christ. We're blessed with salvation. We're blessed with hope. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're blessed with a family. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God. These are all blessings and and more. We talked about yesterday, the peace that surpasses all comprehension. All these are blessings from Christ. And we are so blessed. And so hopefully we're all just enjoying and just living the high life, right? Well, Well, maybe. But hopefully we're thinking about how can I be a blessing to others? How can I be a blessing to others? Will I bless others as God has blessed me? That's that's really our main thought we should be having. We must not go uh, through this life just keeping God's blessings to ourselves. That would be the height of selfishness, to be so blessed and not be a blessing to others. We too must seek to share God's blessings with others. And uh, hopefully during this Thanksgiving season, we've had many opportunities to share why we were thankful for, the things that we're blessing with. And as we think about the blessings, we can think about ways we can share that blessing with others. And as you and I wander through this wilderness of life, having experienced God's blessing in Jesus Christ, our aim should be to continue to be a blessing. Like like Moses to Hobab, invite others to join, and and most importantly, invite others to, to come on this journey with us. To, to start in following the Lord Jesus Christ, to find the, have the hope of forgiveness of sins and, and salvation, and the hope of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there's a, a key truth that leads us to do this, and that's in our third characteristic of the third, and third and final point of this passage, is that the people who are setting out were also a people belonging to the Lord. That these people knew and understood that they belonged to the Lord. Everything about in this section, verse 33, 36, really is a, is a vivid imagery that these people belong to the Lord. Uh, and I'm going to read it in a little bit, but, I'm gonna, but I want you to kind of, if you can as much as possible try to... Uh, Imagine it in your mind and think about, think about the imagery of what this picture looks like. You know, if you go out to the wilderness today, a desert, really, a desert region, you go out to the desert region, when, you, you know, when somebody's kind of just wandering around out there, what, what do you think? Wow, there goes a people really going out for the Lord. No, you don't normally think that. You think there's somebody who's lost, probably, right? Somebody's in the, in the wilderness, you think they're lost, you think they're crazy. So well, imagine what it is when there's two million people wandering around the wilderness, either a bunch of crazy people, a bunch of lost people. Maybe what we think. But everything in this passage tells us, indicates to us, that these are a people that are on a mission. These are a p- people that are on mission because they belong to somebody. They are following somebody. They belong to the Lord. So listen to this imagery and listen to what the imagery and even the, the words that Moses is going to speak that convey that this is a people that belongs to the Lord. They're out here because they belong to the Lord. Verse 33 to 36. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel, the Israelites here are setting out on their first leg. We learn that it's a three-day journey uh, because of this mention of three days, and even the mention of Paran back in verse two, verse twelve. We, sometimes people think that it takes it's a three-day journey from here to Paran, but Deuteronomy one two, chapter one, verse two, tells us specifically that it's an eleven-day journey from Mount Sinai all the way to Kadesh Barnea, which is in Paran. So it's an 11-day journey. And actually, when you study uh, chapter 11 and 12, you find that the events that take place there uh, uh, pretty much add, add to about 11 days. There's going day to be an 11-day journey that does take place. Anyways, it takes 11 days to get there. Um, and, but this first leg is three days. It's the first stage. And in everything in this, this, uh, in this passage just communicates. It's, it's a triumphant Departure. It's a glorious departure. They've been waiting for so long. This is something they've been anticipating for a whole year, if not the previous four hundred years. They've been anticipating this, and then finally the cloud lifts up and they begin their march. They begin their journey. For the first time, we learn uh, they hear that the Ark of the Covenant. We would have expected to be with the other holy objects in the middle of the march. Is now actually in the very beginning. It's in the very front. It goes. It leads the whole. Uh, uh, army of Israel, the congregation of Israel, is right there, up there with the cloud. The ark is set apart to lead Israel. And and why is that significant? Because ark was where the glory of God dwelt when he... When he it was in the tent of meeting, right above the mercy seat. There the glory of God would dwell when it was present with God's people. But now that the glory of the Lord in, from the cloud had moved over from the Ten of meeting and now was leading ahead of Israel, well, well, the ark then naturally follows right behind it because they belong together. Visually, they belong together. Where the ark is, that's where the glory of God uh, is, uh, dwells above. So it is along with the ark, along with the, the uh, glory, the, the cloud of glory, it was all an indication that anybody who's looking, for all the Israelites, but anybody who's just kind of watching you know, this big procession through the wilderness, understands, hey, what are all those people doing? They're following that cloud, and they found following that, that box, or that, that ra- it was wrapped up at this time, so they wouldn't know what it was. But that was a symbol. That, was, that would have been a symbol to them of their God. And this cloud, we learn, was and God was leading them uh, to a resting place, Where they would go, so they were following in hopes of finding the rest that they that God had promised, the promised land that God had promised. Uh, It was a it would be a stunning picture, a vivid picture of God's leading Israel, and God and as Israel followed behind the cloud, followed behind the Ark of Covenant, they were basically saying, "We follow God, we follow the Lord, and we we follow Him because we belong to Him." You know, you didn't belong to Him, you wouldn't follow Him. Because they belonged to him, they followed him. They followed his instructions. Um, they belonged to him twicefold, twofold, in fact, really. And since not only did he create them, but he also saved them, and when he saved them, and he chose them to be his people out of all the nations there, they belonged to him. Now, to add to this 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 exciting moment and this inspiring moment, Moses then adds his own words. And he he speaks these words, and we kind of just read it. It's like, oh wow, Moses is getting pretty eloquent here, He's speaking poetry. You kind of see it's a poetical uh, uh, language almost, uh, the uh, the structure. And whenever the ark set out, Moses would say these words: "Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies know your love, and know your, find your mercy, and experience your grace." Is that what it says? If you're nodding, you better read your Bible again. It says, Arise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Whoa. Let those who hate you flee before you. Whoa. This is a, this is a pretty, this is, a, this is uh, what one commentator calls Moses' battle cry. It's a cry to, God, lead us to war. Lead us before us to battle. That's, that's what it is. And in our, this is a very politically incorrect uh, kind of thing to say these days, right? You know, It's like, oh, man, God's leading them to war. He's saying, go destroy all these people, Lord. And that's what he's saying. It's a cry to the Lord to go before them, to scatter his enemies, everybody that hates them. Lord, will you cause them to flee before you? And what it is, is when Moses says it is a recognition, it's a recognition that God is leading not only the people of God, but he's leading the army of God, and that is what they are. They're called tribal armies. God's leading us as an army. So, uh, you know, I know many of us like to think of God as a God of peace, and He is that. He is absolutely a God of peace. God is, I mean, and that's what the people God, God brings to us. He gives us peace. But at the very same time, the Bible teaches that God is at times, or at least manifests, as a God of war, a God of war, a God of battle, God who causes people to fight for Him. It is a and just as God was a, is a God of, of love and mercy, God is also a God of justice and wrath. Now, of course, we, uh, having said this, and we, we, need to, we hold this, uh, these are all true of God. We must not forget that, that God is a God of wrath and justice. And he's going to, to lead Israel to war. They're heading to the promised land where there are actually people living there. We just celebrate Thanksgiving Day, you know, and you know, and you know, we have the next day Indigenous People Day because then we recognize, well, you know, even as our pilgrims came, we really just dis- we just dis- we displaced a whole another group of people And when we came to America. We did that; it's historically true, and it's, in a sense, that's what's going to happen when Israel goes to the Promised Land. They're going to displace a group of people: these Canaanites. Is was it unjust? No, not unjust, because these Canaanites had many years and hundreds of years to repent. These Canaanites were not just average idol worshipers. They were idol worshipers. They did not worship God, but they were idol worshipers of the worst sort, idol worshipers that, that, le- that in the worship of idols involved the Im- immorality in, in, all, in all its uh, uh, evil ways. But on top of that, it was an idolatry that led to the murder of, that was often practiced by the murder of their own children. What kind of society Murders their children, a society that really deserves God's wrath and judgment. And for four hundred years, God had left the Canaanites to their own devices. They had many times opportunities to to repent if they wished. But for 400 years, they lived in the, land, the promised land. They worshipped their gods. They practiced idolatry, immorality, and child-murdering worship. They offered their children, sac- sac- children sac- child sacrifices to their uh, god Molech. And, uh, and so now God was leading his army of Israel his, his, uh, to, to bring judgment upon the Canaanites. But God does not wish for any to perish, does he? God always is a God who, who, who makes a way possible for anyone to repent if they wish. We know that there is at least one example. in the when, As the armies of Israel go through conquest, there was one who put her trust in the God of Israel. A prostitute, a, a harlot, Rahab. And she experienced mercy, and there was always mercy for God, any of the enemies of God's people to repent at any time and find salvation. And he does that through, and for today he does that still. But it, and it is through Jesus Christ. God sent His very own Son for His enemies, so that His Son would die in the in His enemies' place for their sins, so that. Any enemy who believes upon his son can find forgiveness of sins, forgiveness and a restored relation with the God who they had opposed, but now becomes their God. How much more deserving of God's wrath than for those not only who reject the Father, but reject the Son. Of course, the Lord is still very patient. He is not... uh, He. He is a God of war, and he will one day, if you are in the Revelation class, or Sunday class, you probably you might have covered already, you should have covered, uh, the, the, the battle of Armageddon. When he, God sends back his son on a white horse, king of kings and lord of lords, where there's a sword coming out of his mouth through which he will judge the nations, he is coming back as a God of war and a judge. And it's a terrifying truth. It's a reality, and it will happen. But until then, God is patient and God allows for us to, exist, to dwell on this earth so that people might repent and return to him. But make no mistake, God, uh, God, sends, uh, God will one day send his son back to bring judgment. God is a God of peace and love and mercy. But God is also a God of, of war and justice and judgment and wrath. King David uh, uh, writes very parallel to Moses' battle cry in Psalm 68. And it's just very similar, just recognition of this truth. That let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Our world today would not like to think that God judges anyone or God would destroy anyone. But still, it is the true reality of the scriptures. The God of scriptures is a God who will destroy his enemies one day. But... There is always room for his enemies to repent, for, to, be, uh, to rejoice, to know the Lord, and to be able to rejoice with gladness. So, Moses', ark, Moses words, uh, as, we, as the ark sets forth, reminds God's people, not only they belong to him, but the, they're, they're the, they are the armies of the Lord that belong to him. He's their commander-in-chief as, he, they, as they follow him. And then Moses' final words in verse 36. Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And when the ark stopped, the tabernacle, was with, uh, uh, the, the cloud went back over the tabernacle. Then the, the, the tent of meeting was put around it, and then eventually all the holy objects brought back in. There, along with that, Moses then cries out for God to return back to them. No other nation on earth ever had the Lord dwell in their midst. Not the Egyptians, not the Assyrians, not the Romans, not the Greeks not the Chinese, not, you know, not the Italians. Either. No other nation on earth had God dwell in the midst like this. But the Lord throughout their journeys would always return back to the midst of these people, these people who belong to him. And he belonged to them. And the amazing thing of it, brothers and sisters, is that today, there is not a nation. Well, I guess we could be called a nation. There is a people of God that on earth, where God still dwells in our midst. We see, we read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul writes, For what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, we don't have an ark. We don't have a cloud. But we have something better. We have Jesus Christ. We have his Holy Spirit that he dwells. And we, as the believers in Jesus Christ, are the temple of the living God. You know, a lot of times we think of our bodies as being the temple of the Holy Spirit, and individually that is true. But this passage is talking about the body of Christ, the whole body. This unified, the, this church right here is a, the temple of the living God. Wherever we gather with the, who believe upon Christ, where the Spirit dwells within, where Christ dwells within us, wherever we dwell where we gather, that is a temple of the living God or the temple of the living God because God would, as fulfillment said, he would dwell and walk among them and he will be their God. God only dwells with the people who belong to him and God dwells among us. We rejoice in this. We belong to him. And if we belong to him, then let us be a people that live like we belong to him. Let us remember that as we follow him. Let's never forget that we belong to him. Let's never forget and say, you know, I, uh, who we belong to, our identity, and fall away when, when trials come and difficulties come, we belong to him. He will always go before us as we, uh, to lead us, and he will always come back and dwell. Anyway, he doesn't really leave us. He will always dwell among us and with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. All these are the promises of God that promise to dwell with us. Because why? Because we belong to him. We belong to him, brothers and sisters. You belong to him. And that's how we start. Well, let's wrap it up. Israel's first generation started off toward the promised land as a people believing the Lord, blessed by the Lord, and belonging to the Lord. And though that first generation would fail to finish the journey, every subsequent generation of Israelites, of the people of God, would start in the very same way, as people who believe, trust in him, cry out to him, they would be people who are blessed and recognize their blessing by the Lord and recognize that they belong to the Lord. And the same is no tr- and if they don't start that way, they will, never, they will never enter God's rest. And the same is no less true for you and I today. Every generation of Christ Church must begin in the same way. With these same characteristics by believing the Lord. Yes, that means believing in Jesus Christ initially, but it's not just believing that is it a is a temporal belief that began at one point. It's a, it's a continual belief. We, as God feel, ought to be continually believing in God's word, believing in his promises. Because the, believing it, we, we obey it, we follow it as we head towards the promised land. And secondly, we must be people who are, are recognized that we're blessed. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing and, uh, in the heavenly places. We're blessed with every promise of God. It's our, God's promises that are, are richly, abundantly made known to us in the scriptures. And we must remember that we are all, we begin belonging to the Lord. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we became adopted as children, we became part of his family. Foreigners, Midianites, Gentiles, Chinese, Filipinos, Italians. Uh, you, know, you, name, you name the background. We all who are not Israelites, not God's chosen nation, but we became a part of God's family. God's family. And for those of us who belong to him, let, us, let, let these truths be always on our, on our minds and our, under our, our, thought, our hearts so that throughout our journey we don't lose sight. And when trials come, when obstacles get in the way that are huge, when, you know, there's, there's giants in the land, when oh, there's, there's not enough water, oh, there's, there's no ribs, there's no meat, okay? When those kind of obstacles come away, we don't say, well, let me go back to my old ways. Let me go back to the idols in Egypt. I had a way better than... But let's remember, no, we are people... We are the people who have believed upon the Lord, are richly blessed by the Lord. And because of that faith, we belong to him always. we will be his. And may we continue. And knowing that he, we belong to him, he is faithful to bring us home, to finish what he completed in Christ Jesus, what he started in Christ Jesus. And let us keep trusting in him. Let's keep following. Let's, let's all, we've all started. Let's keep faithfully walking this way and we're we'll following after him. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you for reminding us our, how we started. Uh, we've already are, all of us here are already on that journey as believers. Thank you, Father, for our faith in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the blessings in Christ. And thank you that we belong to you in, because of Christ. Lord, help us as we are running this race, as we're fighting this fight, as we're on this uh, sojourning through this world, that we would not lose heart, that we would not get distracted, that we would not get entangled by the sins and the things that, uh, that are of this earth. But let us keep our eyes set upon you, let us remember that we're following you, and that we would finish what you started in us, that we'd finish well. And Lord, may you, uh, may you continue uh, as we, uh, as we go forth from here to to remember that we have been blessed that we would be a blessing. Use us this week, Lord, to bless other people in our lives and our families and our workplaces in our schools and our homes so that you, that others who may not know you yet may be drawn to a saving faith in Jesus, may wish, like Hobab, to be among God's people. And, Lord, we praise you for this truth. We praise you for your word. And, Lord, we thank you for being our God and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.